Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Boer, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house, the short ephah, which is accursed. Shall I quit someone with dishonest skills with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars. And their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing. Because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. And therefore, I will give you over to ruin, and your people to derision. And you will bear the scorn of the nations. There's a, uh, a campaign going on uh, in the USA at the moment. It's funded by anonymous billionaires designed by a kind of viral marketing company. It's called He Gets Us. He Gets Us. So there's billboards, bus stops, merchandise. The headline uh, in the news reads, $100 million campaign aims to fix Jesus' brand from followers' damage. The campaign director, John Lee, he said, our goal is to give voice to the pent-up energy of like-minded Jesus followers who are ready to reclaim the name of Jesus from those who abuse it to judge, harm and divide people. Another leader in the campaign said, he gets us is a movement 
to free the story of Jesus from hypocrites and extremists. The campaign took this angle because their research found that in the USA, most Americans like Jesus but are sceptical of Jesus' followers. And there's a, there's a similar kind of attitude here in our culture, right? So what is it that, what's happened to people's perception of Jesus and people's perception of Jesus' followers that they would be so disconnected from each other? Well, it's largely because of people who have claimed the name of Jesus but have not been like him, right? People who say that they're a Christian but are unchanged by the Christian gospel. It's been a huge problem. It's been a huge problem throughout the 20th and early 21st centuries as we've seen the final decades of a kind of Christendom in our culture. When people are religious but not transformed by the gospel, that's a huge problem. And it's the problem of Micah, chapter 6. So here's the question of the passage for us. Does our worship of God penetrate deep into our hearts and transform us? Or is our worship surface level, skin deep, unchanging? I wonder whether you've ever taken a bite out of an apple, beautiful, shiny, red apple. It's bursting with fresh juice as you bite in, only to feel the horrifying, mushy, slightly warm, pasty residue inside to show that this apple is rotten from the core. Right? You just know as you pull back and look down, what you're going to see will be horrifying. It's the worst, right? It's, it's repulsive. And that's the state of God's people here in Micah's day. This is the, the why of Micah. This is the why of this passage. God's people are in the dock. This is a, a courtroom scene. Maybe you picked up that language as Kai read for us. God is the prosecuting attorney. And the charge against his people is decay inside, beneath a veneer of religiosity. A rotten heart under smooth skin. This, this kind of heavenly court scene here is a recurring uh, tool that is used across the Bible. We see multiple court scenes like this. But have a look here uh, at God's opening words from verse 2 as he brings his charge. He says, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. God's calling the, the mountains, the hills, the foundations of the earth as his witnesses to hear his accusation against his people. And then we can see his, his charge as we read through verses uh, 1 to 5. Let me read those verses again for us. Listen out for the kind of legal language throughout this. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. 
My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Miriam, Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God's reminding his people of all he's done for them. He's like a heartbroken father that's cared for them for centuries and they're turning their backs on him. He's saying, I did so much for you. I was so faithful to you. I loved you so well. He brings particular charges against them throughout verses 9 to 16, that latter part of our reading. Cheating, stealing, dishonest business, violence, oppression of the poor, lying and deceit, idol worship, following evil traditions. I was on a jury once for a pretty awful crime and even just the reading of the charges took what felt like forever in the courtroom. By the time they were finished being read there was a, a kind of devastated hush over the room. That sense that if, if these charges are true, this is, a, this is a deep and awful tragedy. And that's the mood here as God lays out his charges against his people. God's city, his, his people, has, has become a place and a people of wickedness and evil. Right, the city that was supposed to be a beacon to the whole world of the goodness of God's rule is instead just another den of injustice. The whole nation is guilty, no longer faithful, but righteous, but unrighteous, dangerous, corrupt. And the evil here is so deep, so ingrained that it's become systemic. The rulers are corrupt. The vulnerable are victims. But the sin of God's people is not only devastating the lives of its people, It's devastating to God. It's deeply and personally hurtful to God. Sometimes people question God's judgment of sin. So who is God to judge? Maybe this is you. Maybe you find it hard to understand or to worship a God who judges what people do. But look at God's heart here. See him for who he is. Tell me that he's not justified in his anger. The people that he loves is so corrupt that the most vulnerable among them are not cared for but oppressed. And this is a city full of corrupt businessmen coldly, systematically exploiting the poor to line their own pockets trapping the most vulnerable people in cycles of debt they can never extract themselves from. This is a city full of immorality, people who say the name of Yahweh in one breath and in the next indulge their own desires, lie, cheat, steal. This is a city full of everyday people who turn a blind eye to those in need around them. 
hoarding more than they need while the homeless beg for bread outside their front doors. This is the RMS Queen Mary. She was commissioned in 1936. At the time, she was the biggest ship to ever sail the ocean. She had twice the tonnage of the Titanic and she was originally a luxury liner that was then transformed into a troop carrier for World War II, carrying nearly 800,000 soldiers between America and Europe. Those iconic red and black smokestacks became known on both sides of the Atlantic. She crossed that ocean 1,001 times, 800,000 troops, and across that time had 30 new paints, new coats of paint on her famous smokestacks. And when they retired her, they removed the smokestacks for, for refurbishment and maintenance. But as the crane picked them up and lowered them onto the wharf, these huge structures crumbled. Layer after layer of paint had hidden the rusting decay of the steel underneath. The beautiful red and black exteriors of these smokestacks crumbled to reveal a wasted, a rusty interior that spoke not of, of power and elegance, but of decay and deterioration. The outward appearance was hiding the inward reality. God wants something better than that for you and for me. God wants something better for us than empty religious practice without heart transformation. He wants something better for us than what the people of God in Micah's day were bringing. So in, in the flow of Micah 6, in this legal scene, God lays out his accusations against the people. And then Israel responds to God's accusation by trying to work out, okay, what will be enough to please him, to placate him, to turn aside his anger? They're trying to make a plea deal in the courtroom, right? They're trying to calculate how much it will take to satisfy God's frustration. And it's a little ambiguous in verses 6 to 8, if you have a look in front of you there, whether the speaker in verses 6 to 8 is the whole people of Israel or Micah himself as a representative of the people. But either way, what we're seeing is the human response to God's accusation. So from verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? So what does God want from me? What does he want from us? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Or should I bring him stuff, material sacrifices, good things to give to him? Will the Lord be pleased with, the, with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Okay, what about bigger sacrifices, more stuff? Is that what it would take to please God? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
okay, God, even the most precious thing I have, is that what it will take? Even my own child, if I sacrifice to God the thing I love more than even my own life, would that be enough to turn aside his anger? Would that be enough to show him I love him? None of them would please God. Because none of them are what God loves. None of them are what God desires. None of them are what God wants for us. He's not interested in getting your stuff, even the most precious. Israel's Israel's scrambling to find what it will take. What, What religious stuff do we need to do for God? But none of it is what God wants. No amount of religious rituals or attendance or sacrifices replace the worshipful heart, the life devoted to God that he longs for from us. What the people are doing here, right, is that they're treating God like the other gods of the day, like idol gods. But the God of the Bible does not exist to extract bribes from you in exchange for giving you good fortune or allowing you to continue on in your your merry and selfish way. That's not who our God is. No, he's our creator. He's our father. He's the one who loves you and wants relationship with you. He wants your heart, not not skin-deep devotion. If God isn't interested in sacrifices or religious rituals from his people, what is it that he desires? What does he love? Verse 8 gives us the answer. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There is no thing that you could bring to God which would be enough to make him love you or prove your love to him. Because, here's the gospel, right? You don't have to. You don't have to bring something to God that's enough to make him love you or prove your love to him. He loved you before the creation of the world. He loved you before you took your first breath. He loved you as he took his last breath on the cross to save you and make you new. He has shown you his love. He has shown you, O mortal. He's shown you on the cross and in the empty tomb, that he is not a God who wants your stuff, he wants your heart. This verse, verse 8, is one of those verses, right, that makes it onto bumper stickers and posters and church buildings and campaigns. This verse stands as the motto uh, over the alcove of religion in the reading room of the Congressional Library in Washington. Numerous kind of accolades have been showered on this verse. One scholar says, this is the centre of all the commandments as the prophets understood them. Another says, 
This is the finest summary of the content of practical religion to be found in the Old Testament. And rabbis who commented on this verse in the early centuries of the Christian era called it a one-line summary of the whole law. What do you reckon? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what a transformed life looks like. That's a life lived in response to God's love. Is that what your life looks like? Let's dig in a little bit to each of those three instructions there, each of those visions, to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So first, act justly. What does that mean? What is to be just? What is justice? Well, the, the dictionary calls it the quality of equitableness and moral rightness. That's a bit dry for me. The the Bible has a much richer meaning of the word justice. It carries a whole lot of ideas, ideas like right relationship, of bringing wholeness, of aligning reality with the heart of God. And we love the idea of justice, right? Our culture is one which appeals to justice a lot. It's a high value in our culture. We look for justice for minority groups, in society. Justice for refugees, justice for victims of violence, justice for women. But but far too often we reduce justice just to opposing injustice and even beyond that to just de-identifying ourselves with injustice. Can you see, see the difference? The call here is not to that, it's the costly call to act justly. It would be easier here if the command was the other way around, right? To love justice and to act with mercy. It's easier to love justice because that's more abstract. It would always be easier to affirm what's abstract than what's concrete, right? If we surveyed the room, do you love justice? Everyone's going to say yes, right? No one is going to say no to that. But if we surveyed the room and asked, how are you acting for justice? I think we'd get more patchy results. Acting justly makes a greater demand on us. Acting justly is necessarily costly. And so is it to love mercy. The word for mercy here is the word hesed. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's kind of one of the Bible's big words. It's the, Bi- it's the word that the Bible uses for God's covenant love to his people. Love which is faithful and deep and enduring. The kids' Bible that I read to Bella calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. His chesed love. And like God's justice, God's mercy is costly. It's because of that chesed mercy that Christ died. And for us, if we would show never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, that doesn't come cheap. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. 
to live like that, to live justly and, and with mercy is a way of life. It's a walk with God. And we walk humbly with him as we are, we are aware and dependent on his power in us. We walk in step with him, looking to him for, for the power, the strength, the rest that we need. The life which God loves and requires of us in the language of Micah 6.8 is one that can only be lived by his power, never by our own. God doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want a bunch of surface level religious practices. What does he want? What does he love? What does he require? Your heart. Your your transformed life of justice and mercy. To walk humbly with him. So how, how deep does your faith in this God go? Is it skin deep? Or does it transform your heart? How much does, does your religious practice, the things that we do, actually penetrate down through your skin in deep and change the way you live? I see people unchanged all the time, going day to day, week to week, doing religious stuff, but unchanged from the inside out. Is that where you're at? Does your faith, does your your religion transform you? You might ask it like this. Apart from the times when you are doing religious activities, like going to church or to, to your connect group, apart from those kind of particular periods in the week, would your life look any different if you weren't a Christian? Faith must change us in those in-between times. It must transform us in the in-between times. Transform us into people of, of faithfulness and righteous and justice and mercy. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Though our faith was skin deep, God reached into our hearts. When we didn't love him, he loved us. God acted justly. God loved mercy. He did it in the person and the work of Jesus, the one whose own life was the perfect expression of this vision for life. Jesus lived out true justice and mercy, truly walked with God. And then through the cross and his resurrection, he made a way for us to join in that walk with him. His spirit in us empowers us to live the way God calls us to live. That's why why this passage is is gospel and not works. God isn't giving us here a standard that he expects and then watching us to see if we'll make it. No, no, he he kneels down to help us. He enters our world. He lives our life. He makes the way for us. He leads us through it by the hand. In his love for us, God changes 
us. As Leighton Ford said, God loves us just the way we are, but too much to leave us that way. Or as Spurgeon wrote, only through faith in Christ does someone learn to do righteously and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us to that end do we fulfil these divine requirements. God does not want skin-deep worship. He wants heart transformation. And he makes the way for that to be true in us. So, perhaps you're here this morning and you, you don't believe in the God of the Bible or maybe not in any God at all. If that's you, my, my hope is today that you'll see what's in the heart of the God of the Bible, direct from his words here. Right, like that marketing campaign, as good or bad as it might be, is trying to undo unhelpful and untrue perceptions of Jesus based on bad ways that Jesus' followers have acted. I hope that, that you can assess God on his own merits. He's a God of justice and mercy. He's a God who loves us and desires our love in return, not one who wants religious observance or material sacrifice. And he is a God who would enter our world, who would die in our place and rise from the dead to make this kind of life possible now and forever. That's some of us here. Others of us might be kind of feeling called out by God's word here, seeing the gap between our outward actions or our religious practice and our inner lives, our hearts. Some of us have been living Christian lives like the Queen Mary, shiny on the outside, broken inside. For those of us, know that Micah 6 is not a word of condemnation for you. It's a word of hope. It's an invitation. Jesus went ahead of you to live that perfect life that you couldn't live, that I couldn't live, that none of us could live. He did it for you. He died for you. He rose for you. He sent his spirit to you to give you power for real change. And moving from a kind of a surface level religious observance to a a transformed life and heart, that takes time. It takes hard work. It takes participating in the work of God in you, but it will unleash the kind of life to the full that Jesus invites us to and the life that is so much better. And you're only going to be able to do that if you do it together. So if that's you, let me invite you after the service, find someone to to pray with. Ask them to pray for you in this. Talk to to a friend or to Alex or to Nat or myself. We'd love to pray with you and for you. And then some others among us are living genuine, heart-transformed lives of faith. Not perfect lives of faith by any stretch, but but growing in the love and the knowledge of Jesus. And, And for those of us, let me encourage you to consider how your life might increasingly be one of of justice 
and mercy as you walk humbly with your God. These verses are rightly used often to promote uh, advocacy and and charity and support uh, for those who are vulnerable. So who are those around you who might be victims of injustice? Who are those around you who you might serve? Who around you is in need of mercy? Because it's it's those actions that transform life that they flow out from which truly pleases God. That's his desire for you. That's what he loves. So I'm going to pray for all of us that we would live that kind of life by God's power uh, and then we'll sing to him. So would you pray with me uh, and then we'll sing. Let's pray. God of, of justice and mercy, thank you for making a way for us to walk with you, to know you, to please you. And we pray for all of us, Lord, that our lives would indeed please you. Help us to walk humbly with our God. Amen.